Hello, and welcome to episode number 71 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacadamian. Ever since human beings have had some sense of the immensity of the cosmos, when we look up to the starry array above our heads in the dark of night, an enduring question emerges. How many other planets with sophisticated civilizations like ours are out there? With a thousand pinpricks of light coming through that black tapestry of the night sky, many of us logically assume the cosmos is likely teeming with life. Of course, that initial impression, based more on a hunch perhaps than solid data, has only grown stronger and stronger as our understanding of the immense scope of the universe has come more fully into view. Dazzling as the Earth, our home planet is, it is but one rock circling one star in one star system amongst hundreds of billions in our Milky Way galaxy alone, and likewise that galaxy is merely one of trillions scattered across the vast expanse of the cosmos. The so-called Fermi paradox arises from the apparent conflict between the lack of clear, obvious signs of extraterrestrial life despite consistently high estimates for their probable existence. This paradox is named after Italian-American physicist Enrico Fermi, who, as the story goes, in the midst of a casual conversation with fellow physicists in almost the precise middle of the 20th century, exclaimed when thinking on these matters, but where is everybody? Or something to that effect. It is indeed a perplexing matter. As time has gone on, we've gathered more and more evidence, not just about how gargantuan the cosmos actually is, but how, as Dr. Ian Malcolm, a character in the original Jurassic Park movie, played by Jeff Goldblum, famously says, life finds a way. In other words, life seems to spring up in even the most inhospitable of environments. That being the case, and considering how many Goldilocks-like planets must exist, even amongst the many planets that are perhaps not suited for life, where are all these civilizations? Why are we not finding clear evidence of their existence? Of course, the Fermi Paradox makes certain assumptions, firstly about the nature and ultimate reality of the space-time construct we find ourselves seemingly firmly embedded within, but also about the notion that civilizations that are perhaps out there, and perhaps are much more advanced than we Earthlings, would not choose to interfere with our ability to perceive their existence. When you really think about it, this is a rather strange assumption to make. After all, we manipulate our environment almost the moment we gain the ability to. Why would this not occur with interstellar civilizations that have mastered interstellar and perhaps even intergalactic travel in the same way we've mastered intercontinental travel? And of course, last but certainly not least, there is the clear evidence gathered not just over the course of what you might call the modern UFO era, reaching back to the early to mid-20th century, but even to our distant religious lore and early creation myths, suggesting these others have been here for a very long time, perhaps even predating us as beings walking this blue pearl of a planet. So all this being the case, what does this mean? Why are we simultaneously being visited and interacted with by these non-conventionally human others, while also being presented with a visible universe that appears starkly devoid of life? These are the compelling and head-scratching matters that we'll endeavor to make sense of in this, 
the 71st episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As we begin this week's episode, I would just like to give a shout out to my Patreon supporters. And for those of you interested in becoming Patreon supporters, I would just say that beginning this fall, I will be offering bonus odes once a month to Patreon supporters, as well as hosting Ask Me Anything sessions as well. All right, on to this episode's topic. The Fermi Paradox. What is up with that? Well, I would suggest that the apparent reality itself hints at the answer, because the apparent reality is a contradiction. Our models of the universe are such that we believe sophisticated life should exist elsewhere, probably in abundance, and yet we're not finding any apparent evidence of this when we look out at the immensity of the cosmos, which we have the power to do more than we ever have before. What does this mean? Now, for those of us who are familiar with the UFO phenomenon topic, and who take experiencer accounts seriously, which I will make the initial point of saying, we should. This is a data set. Every time someone has an experience with an apparent non-human intelligence, that is a data point. When we take that across the entirety of these reports, that is a data set. This is legitimate evidence that we need to pay attention to, especially when we find commonalities across the broad swath of those reports. This is probably the most important evidence we need to pay attention to. Yes, it matters when we spot things in the sky and we capture videos and photos of them, but the interactions with the intelligences is what really matters. In fact, I would argue that the public face of this entire endeavor is a bit of a farce because we don't even address really publicly in the conventional mainstream media what this means about who these are. What are these occupants? What is the nature of this intelligence? What does it mean that these are non-human? Even when we write this into the congressional record with language talking about only paying attention to vehicles that are supposedly of a non-human origin, we're saying bluntly what we're getting at here. Non-human intelligence, aliens in our midst. It's in the language that has been drafted by Congress. This is what we really should be paying attention to. Again, I would argue that the broad swath of experiencer data is very valuable, perhaps the most valuable data we have to pay attention to. Now, not only do we find evidence of these others having been here and that they're still here, but we also, when we look with unprejudiced and humble eyes, see evidence suggesting they, some of them anyway, are likely responsible for our very existence, that we are indeed the fruit of their seeding program. Now, again, the reason why this is not taken seriously in the mainstream is because we do not look with unprejudiced and humble eyes for the most part. Most people do not. They like to believe that we have been unenhanced, that we haven't been played with, that we haven't been the experiment of some more sophisticated intelligence that predates us. All of that is bias, all of that is prejudice, none of it is based on the evidence at hand. Now, furthermore, as I've touched on in other podcasts, the consistently bipedal, humanoid, and often fully human-looking others makes it clear that we are but one batch or one iteration of a vast cosmic seeding program. Now, when you think about this, it actually makes sense. If civilizations sprung up at very different points in the history of our cosmos, 
then some would advance to the point where they could start seeding other civilizations long before those civilizations would have sprung up on their own, if indeed they ever would have sprung up on their own, based on the local conditions of any particular planet. Those who are proponents of the simulation hypothesis have suggested, based purely on mathematical probabilities, that we're more likely the holographic simulation of some physical civilization living in base reality than we are actually beings living in a base reality ourselves. Now, I understand this thinking, but I think it goes awry in assuming slash believing that the quote-unquote physical universe is ultimately base reality. I don't think it is. But what we can draw from this is the notion that it's more likely, probably by far, that we are the experiment of some much more sophisticated civilization than we are a species that just so happen to spring up on their own via the process of evolution by natural selection. And of course, for all the theory of natural selection has been able to explain, there are elements of our natures that it has not adequately addressed. Of course, as with archaeology, there is a bias towards non-intervention when it comes to these models. Scientists in these fields will do their darndest to explain our development according to purely naturalistic models, mainly as a pushback against the church's notion that we are the clockwork construction of an ever-present God who exists outside of space-time. In other words, that was the historical context in which science sprung up, and it was pushing back against its previous power structure, which was the church. But in doing that, it has overreached. This overreach by the scientific mainstream misses the writing on the wall, suggesting that we have not only been tweaked at various points in our species' history, but that our very initial genesis is likely tied to the intervention of some extraterrestrial slash interdimensional intelligence. Again, part of the problem with the mainstream view is that it takes as a given that what we observe is actually base reality. There are numerous diverse but converging lines of evidence suggesting this is simply not likely to be the case. First, we have Donald Hoffman's work, which I've discussed numerous times on this podcast, suggesting that what we see, feel, hear, taste, i.e. experience, is not reality, but rather an interface which offers to us icons of experience, which only very loosely and non-literally associate with some deeper structure of reality that exists outside of space-time altogether space-time being itself merely an aspect of our interface. Then we have the work of cutting-edge physicists such as Ed Witten and Nima Arkani Hamed telling us that physics itself is telling us that space-time cannot be fundamental. The math tells us this, and that we're already indeed seeing evidence for structures that exist outside space-time altogether, structures such as the amplitudehedron. Finally, we have the experience of human beings intersecting with various others that are part and parcel of what we colloquially refer to as the UFO phenomenon, who can, at a moment's notice, at the very apparent whim of these non-human others, experience an entire perceptual set that is different than it was, and that is different than everyone else around. Simply put, they can boot up an experience of reality that is custom-crafted for each and every one of us whenever they want to. 
That's exactly why there are numerous reports of, for instance, two or three people seeing vast spacecraft floating over a busy interstate while everyone else remains completely oblivious. All that is to say, the Fermi paradox exists not because of some underlying truth of reality, but as an artifact of the interface these others serve up for us. We only see, experience, and are able to measure what they deem appropriate. Full stop. And as long as we continue to believe that we are, in an unimpeded way, interacting with base reality, we will be fooled by the illusion of our holographic surroundings. Many are familiar with the notion of a prime directive in Star Trek. Now, it should not be surprising to us that many have wondered what the originator of Star Trek, a man named Gene Roddenberry, had come into contact with or awareness of because many of the notions shared in that series so closely resemble the notions we have communicated to us by experiencers, not the least of which, of course, is the consistently bipedal humanoid shape of these various alien species, as is the case on the show. With the Prime Directive, the notion is that a local species-slash-civilization should not be interacted with prematurely because this will impact their normal course of development. There is a sense that, like children without so-called helicopter parents, a civilization must learn the deep truths of life through trial and error, without the obvious interference or overbearing intervention of some higher, more civilized race or civilization. This certainly seems to be apparent in the ways these various others have interacted with us. And the fact that they all seem to adhere to this principle, for the most part, suggests that this really is a cosmic norm that is followed. But what I'm saying here is that this principle of non-interference goes beyond this. I'm saying that the very reality, quote-unquote, we are permitted to know exists, is controlled as a part of this maturation process. And as I've already stated, that means what we're actually able to see and experience of the physical universe, in air quotes, is determined in large part by our current level of development. So let's pause here for a moment to make this point really clear. Think back to the movie The Matrix. The Matrix depicts a dystopian future in which humanity is unknowingly trapped inside a simulated reality. The Matrix which intelligent machines have created to distract humans while using their bodies as an energy source. Now, what I'm saying here is that we also are in a kind of matrix that is not controlled by robots, intelligent machines, but by more sophisticated intelligences, perhaps the very intelligences who seated us on this planet, along with other iterations they seated elsewhere. And that it's not that we just don't interact with them, that they keep their distance, like as with the Prime Directive in Star Trek, so as to not bias our development, but that the very way we see reality, the way we see the universe, what we see of the universe, is controlled by them, by what they allow us to see as part of our interface. And this is precisely why it's so simple for them, many of them, to just show up in our reality. They pop in and they pop out, whether that's in the sky above our heads or in our bedrooms in the middle of the night. They can do this because the reality we think we live in is an interface. As I keep saying, as Donald Hoffman and others have postulated, 
Again, as physicists like Nima Arkani Hamed have suggested, space-time and quantum theory being a projection of a deeper structure, that these others know of this deeper structure, they work in those realms, and therefore they can manipulate the projection itself, which ends up looking to us like the violation of our understanding of physics. But the issue is that physics is really just rules that are part of the interface, part of the virtual reality. These others, of course, are working in the source code behind that, and so it's child's play for them. So this is the key point. In Star Trek, you have the Prime Directive, which says that more sophisticated civilizations shouldn't interfere prematurely with less sophisticated ones. That is true for the most part. That's why they don't land on the White House lawn. But furthermore, the very nature of what we experience as reality is also controlled by them. This is the part that is often missed, and this is the very reality I'm suggesting is being strongly hinted at in the Fermi Paradox, where on the one hand, we know there should be life out there, plentiful life, and yet we're not finding it. And I'm saying it's because of this ability of them to control what we observe. That if you think about a virtual reality and having a headset on, the reality you see within the headset, all of our science, all of our tools, all of our physics, everything is measuring what we observe inside the headset of the virtual reality. It's not base reality itself, and that's why we're looking in precisely the wrong place to find them. And that's indeed exactly what Donald Hoffman suggests. He also believes that reality itself is likely teeming with what he calls conscious agents. But we only interact with the ones which our interface serves up an icon of. That's the really key distinction. And I think that's key to understanding general paranormality and certainly the mystery of the UFO phenomenon. I would also like to stop and make another key distinction here. Because when people think about these others, some of them perhaps being the very civilizations that seeded our civilization, that they perhaps wanted to mirror themselves by planting another seed like themselves here to see how it would go. And that might even involve genetic manipulation, the genome itself being supplanted by them. Now, a key here is that some will look at them, therefore, and say, well, these are the gods of old. On the one hand, you could see them that way. And when we think back to phenomena such as cargo cults, you see how that often happens. When a less sophisticated civilization comes into contact with the technology of a more sophisticated civilization, they tend to see them as gods. They try to worship them. They try to appeal to them to change their reality. But ultimately, these higher beings are merely just more sophisticated forms of other kinds of biological life. That's what's going on here as well. Just because they seeded us doesn't mean that they are gods in the purest sense of that term, meaning outside of what you might call the circle of life altogether. No, what I'm suggesting is that the very way that the circle of life eventually comes around is that more sophisticated intelligences learn how to plant new civilizations, and that this happens time and time again, and that they themselves may be the planting of another civilization that predated them. And this goes on and on and on in layers and waves. And that's why you even have different dimensions of reality that represent different levels of the overarching spiral where this kind of process perhaps has been taking place 
for eons. Now, dialing back to this notion that I mentioned before about the experience we have of a physical universe, quote-unquote, is determined in large part by our current level of development. Regarding this last point, what I want to say is that humanity is still painfully naive. Not surprisingly, any individual can only find itself in reality based on bearings. In the same way, we can only determine our level of consciousness development based on what we perceive the parameters of possibility to be. Said differently, as I've mentioned on previous podcast episodes, one cannot see beyond the ceiling of one's own consciousness level. Anything above that is literally invisible, non-discernible, and thus effectively non-existent. And when a lesser developed intelligence encounters a more advanced intelligence, what it tends to perceive is either gobbledygook, incoherence, or they commit what is known in integral theory circles as the pre-trans fallacy, which means that they mistake a more advanced stage of consciousness for an earlier, lesser one, because that is the only map that applies for that person in that instance. This is partly because of the spiraling nature of consciousness development, a la spiral dynamics. So, for instance, advanced non-dual spirituality may, in an earlier form, manifest as fundamentalist religion, lower on the spiral. So when, for instance, a modernist atheist encounters advanced spirituality, they may mistake it for a naive fundamentalist pre-modern primitive religion, rather than for what it actually is, which is metamodern transrational non-duality, a stage literally invisible to this person at the modern stage of consciousness development. By the way, if you'd like to learn more about these various stages of consciousness, which are very well attested to both in the development of individuals and entire societies, and that these arise as emergent properties over time, I cover this in some depth in episode number nine. Now, first off, I want to point out that part of the reason why the question of how human civilization will respond to something like disclosure of the existence and interpenetrating presence of these many others is complex, is that there are numerous different levels of consciousness coexisting on the planet as we speak. Not surprisingly, how an isolated pre-modern tribe living in the Amazon will respond to these revelations is different from how a modern Western civilization will likely respond. Although, interestingly enough, based on the norms of shamanic cultures, the former may actually have an easier time of it than the latter, because this notion of many others existing in overlapping domains of existence is already well understood. It is their conventional understanding. But when you take the middle ground of humanity's present stage of consciousness, meaning you exclude those at the very early stage as well as those at very advanced stages of transpersonal understanding, what we find is a vast majority who are still dominated by an overarchingly tribal perspective. Tribal at different levels. Some, it's just the family. Some, it's just the culture. Some, it's the entire nation state. And thus, other members of the very same species, let alone all the other species on the planet, are seen as competitors for what are perceived as a cache of limited, scarce resources. And one sees getting ahead, quote-unquote, as being a zero-sum game between these various competitors. Now, undoubtedly, some people are further along than others in terms of how this plays out, 
and yet for the most part, various degrees of tribalism still dominate. This is the overwhelming center of gravity for our civilization at this point in time. Lest we forget or take this as normal because we lack the requisite context to see how primitive this actually is, let's make this clear. We still presently exist within nation-state borders, where the most advanced, so to speak, nations still point weapons of mass destruction towards each other, which could, at a moment's notice, wipe out the entire civilization, not to mention vast aspects of the biosphere right along with it. And while waiting to see if we destroy ourselves with these nuclear weapons, we work on bioweapons, which are more insidious but just as potentially dangerous, at least for human beings. Of course, in addition to this adversarial us-versus-them behavior, we operate largely under a commodity-slash-resource-centric attitude towards the planet, which is, of course, our one and only home. Almost daily now, we hear about records falling related to climate change around the world. It's one emergency after another. And yet when people are challenged with making systemic changes that allow for some degree of a course correction, they balk, opting instead for rather minuscule, superficial changes that don't really even begin to grapple with the extent and pressing nature of the problem. And we exist within a system where billionaires spend untold millions constructing doomsday bunkers rather than using those funds to help those that still suffer under abject poverty and malnourishment on a daily basis. And in the midst of this present predicament, we consider it normal or legitimate to start expanding out into space when we have yet to address some of the most basic inequalities and emergencies that exist on our home planet. Now, if we think these various others, especially the more sophisticated ones, the more morally advanced ones, are simply going to let this happen, this exporting of a kind of collective insanity, we are fooling ourselves and are, more importantly, losing sight of exactly where we are presently located along the spectrum of consciousness development. This leads me to a tweet that I made last night that seemed to gather a lot of attention and people asked for follow-up. Let me quote it again here. This is what I wrote on Twitter last night. For those with ears to hear, many look to the skies and lament our supposed oppressive alien overlords, but let me say this. Humanity is an experiment, and truth be told, the experiment's incessantly divisive default mode is approaching an event horizon. Now, what did I mean by this? In a way, I meant this twofold. Number one, whether you believe that our alien overlords or those who seeded our civilization will put up with the nature of the way the experiment has gone for very much longer is one question. But even putting that aside for a second, just the nature of how we are caring about our business brings our own future very much into question. So that event horizon, which those of you not familiar with that term means a point of no return. In other words, we are facing the precipice of self-destruction. Now, I would argue that evidence suggests that there actually have been numerous civilizations, numerous human civilizations, even right here on the earth, and that there apparently are these cyclical 
cataclysms that happen about every 11.5 to 12,000 years. There seems to be a fair amount of evidence pointing in this direction in the historical record. Although again, the archaeological mainstream, the anthropological mainstream doesn't like to acknowledge that because again, there's this bias towards naturalistic and non-interventionist histories. We make ridiculous assumptions, for instance, about prehistory, which is so old that we really have no idea what happened. So to make strong conclusions about what it was like is, at the very least, begging the question. But the point is, if we are a seeding experiment, one amongst many, then what you have to realize is there's a certain beginning stage. And then there's some randomness that comes into the process by way of our decisions, that we have habits that we form, and then these habits form us. Over time, this repeats and repeats and repeats until you end up with norms of civilization. And when a civilization is less developed, sticks and stones and spears and cannons maybe, there's only so much damage they can do while our overlords, so to speak, wait for our consciousness development. But eventually it gets to the point where we develop nuclear weapons and that we develop the technology capacities to move out into space to other planets. And then if we have a vast discrepancy between our level of consciousness and our technological capacity, that becomes a problem because now we are no longer localized to a certain planet, but we are now like a virus that could extend into the cosmos. This is an issue. We have been told, experiences have been told over and over again, that this has happened many times, not just on the Earth, but on other planets as well. That it's actually more the norm that when civilizations get to our point, they do tend to self-destruct under the weight of that discrepancy between their technological capacity and their consciousness development. We are very much at that same event horizon now. We are quickly approaching it anyway. Now, speaking of our civilization, and specifically Western civilization, we have a high degree of emphasis on freedom of the individual, which makes some sense, but right now seems completely out of step with how that benefits or costs the collective. And beyond this, for those of us who've had a non-dual realization, we recognize that any of that individuality is ultimately an illusion that you can play with the illusion, you can live into it, but to be completely convinced of it, to forget the unity that we are a part of, is not only foolhardy, does not only lead you astray, but is ultimately utterly destructive. It's like a cell that becomes a cancer cell in a body. When it forgets that which it is a part of, what it serves, indeed, in the big picture, then it becomes problematic. It takes on a life of its own that actually can destroy the very organism of which it is a part. This is what happens when individualism is run amok. Now here I'm reminded of various experiencer stories, various experiencers that I've talked to, that I've gotten to know, who have encountered this oneness, this sense of oneness in these others. I myself have experienced this. Now at first this can be very, very overwhelming to a human being who's used to solid walls separating themselves from others, not just in terms of our bodies, but also our thoughts, our emotions, etc. But if you think back to the episode 39, where I discussed Yossi Ronin's encounter with beings that he first encountered in a dream, and then later woke up to find them in his apartment, 
What he was struck by was how much there was so much vulnerability. Their entire presence, which I call total presence telepathy, was available to him. He knew everything about them. Likewise, everything about him, the most intimate interiority to do with him, was exposed to them. Now, to them, this was normal. This is just the state of affairs. But for Ronan, and for many human beings, of course, it's completely overwhelming. And yet that ultimate unity is key not only to understanding these others, but is key for a civilization to really come together and move forward and reckon with these challenges between technological development and consciousness development. And here I'm reminded of what Dr. Edgar Mitchell, a man to walk on the moon, said about his revelation about that oneness when he looked back on planet Earth from space. He said, I quote, I experienced an ecstasy of unity. Connectedness is the benchmark, reality, and separateness is the illusion. Again, that's from Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Now, his transformative experience led him to go on to establish the Institute of Noetic Sciences, IONS, in 1973. And this is what Ion says about its founding by Dr. Edgar Mitchell. And I'm repeating this now because I think this is telling for how we should proceed from here on out. Quoting from their About Us page, he understood that by applying the scientific rigor used in his explorations of outer space, we could better understand the mysteries of inner space, the space in which he felt an undeniable sense of interconnection and oneness. Our dear friend and founder, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, passed away in February 2016. At IONS, we continue this work today. We use the power of science to explore our inner space, understanding that both objective knowledge and subjective knowing are necessary for a more complete understanding. The mission of the Institute of Noetic Sciences is to reveal the interconnected nature of reality through scientific exploration and personal discovery. We trust that individuals who have had their own transformative experiences will learn from our research, both our scientific experiments and our opportunities for personal discovery, and gain a deeper sense of their own purpose. We believe that by accessing that same sense of interconnectedness Dr. Mitchell felt on his return from the moon, we can all contribute to enhancing the quality of life on Earth." Unquote. Now, I'm very aware of the notion, as I've stated in other contexts, that to a large degree, we form our habits and then our habits form us. This is true both of individuals and collective societies. Our Western society's tendency to justify certain long-term trends and behavior patterns based merely on the fact that that's just how things are done, quote-unquote, or by superficially only making comparisons with other models which were or are even less tenable than the current one, again highlights our nearsightedness and our tendency to deflect from taking responsibility. Our leaders of late, at least on the sociopolitical level, have been woefully lacking. But we are responsible for a system which makes them the choices to draw from to begin with. And I recognize that, depending on where you live, your standard of living, etc., your ability to impact change varies. But that said, to be clear, we need not simply fine-tuning, but systemic changes. Of course, these systemic changes begin with each and every one of us taking responsibility for the greatest sphere of our own personal influence, namely ourselves. 
but a key aspect of the needed change involves a shifting of what we value, what we invest in, what we protect, and what we nurture. We cannot grow a sustainable system from a model of the world that sees people as separate individual selves disconnected from the larger whole and that sees the world we live in as a frontier to be dominated. Put succinctly, we need to invest in and cultivate inner awareness, inner technologies, rather than merely exterior ones that daily increase our sheer computational power. Because ultimately, we can only grow our civilization's tree as high and far as its roots are deep. This really comes down to not only making superficial changes that are the equivalent of a shuffling of the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, but to a complete reordering of our priorities. And on that note, I'll leave you with another quote from Dr. Edgar Mitchell, who said, quote, We need to make the world safe for creativity and intuition, for it's creativity and intuition that will make the world safe for us, unquote. And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash exoacadamian. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacadamian, signing out.